for us as a program, when we discovered the three-step process of communication of right time, right place, and right attitude, it was an absolute game changer for us. Welcome to the Jamodi Podcast. We are all surrounded by amazing coaches and leaders. So let's get an inside look at not just what they do, but how they do what they do. After all, becoming the best versions of ourselves is Jamodi, just a matter of doing it. Today, we are joined by Matt McLeod, former high school coach and owner of Matt McLeod Basketball. After serving 14 years as a high school coach and athletic director, Coach McLeod stepped away from coaching his own team to now spending his time as a basketball and leadership development coach. He works with athletes and coaches across the country as a director for PGC and clinician for Savvy Basketball. While coaching, his career record is 324 and 162, and he was a three-time TAPC Coach of the Year. To learn more, check out CoachMcLeod.com. Before we hear from Coach, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media at Jamodi Podcast. Coach. Sorry about that. My internet did not want to cooperate. So I had Listen, to you never have to apologize to me, ever. Hey, if you're not five minutes early, you're late, right? So like, Love that. we got to work on that. <laughs> How are you, man? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I just man, really appreciate you taking the time to 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 talk hoops with me. How long have we known each other now? That's such a good question. When did you first write the leftovers? Because you came to that snaps conference. Yeah. And that was when it was. It's been like nine, ten, ten years now. Yeah, nine, you know, ten years. Yeah. Yeah. You're one of my favorite guys, known you for 10 years. I love the basketball mind that you have and I think we're aligned in a lot of ways that we think about playing and, and coaching and so you're just one of the guys I'm so excited to have on so again appreciate your time man absolutely I'm I'm really excited this is my first my like virgin podcast experience like being one of the guests so uh, I'm excited about that as well <laughs> well nice real quick tell tell me a little bit about Matt McLeod basketball for sure yeah it's coachmcleod.com is the website after 14 years on the sideline when I stepped away last year I wanted to find a way that I could serve both coaches and players at the same time so that's really where Matt McLeod basketball coachmcleod.com came from uh, right now it's sending out weekly weekly emails to specifically the coaches and then also weekly email for coaches players and parents I would call it the deep three, which is just three ways to uh, three thoughts, ideas, uh, motivations to help players, parents and coaches as they go through their year round journey with basketball uh, and also doing a little bit of basketball training, uh, more clinics with teams, as well as some one on one coaching with coaches and players, as well as some small uh, cohorts. So, yeah, just a little bit of everything right now. Yeah, that's big time. I mean, so I I've had the pleasure of getting to coach against you, which, you know, the talent that you had at Cassidy was was incredible. And and you did such a good job with them. I've also had the the pleasure of getting to listen to you teach at PGC sessions. And so, you know, coaches, I just want to encourage you to check out these resources that Matt has online because he he is. He's just a you're just a really talented teacher and you do such a great job of communicating clearly. And I happen to like the way that you think. Uh, and we align. So again, I think that's just something awesome that you're doing now and giving back to coaches. That's outstanding, man. I appreciate it. You know, it's uh, it was different. Uh, I wasn't sure how much I would miss the sideline if I'd miss it at all. And in days I missed it a lot. 
Um, and then there were other days where I just realized the impact I'm able to have helping teams across the country and players across the country. Uh, yeah, finding a, finding a new niche and really enjoying it so far. So, yeah, yeah, it's always, kind of a cool way. I was way. taking stuff I steal from you, too, all the time um, with <laughs> shooting and, and how to train players and uh, sharing that knowledge uh, everywhere we can. All we do is borrow. That's it. Yeah. We just borrow from Absolutely. everybody. But but your ability to zoom out a little bit, because I think sometimes when you have a team, it's not about us as coaches when we have a team, but we do zoom in just on that team and we really focus on impacting them uh, when you're able to do what you've done, which is not have necessarily a team, but zoom out and get to impact, like you said. I mean, and the cool thing with social media, with with Zooming, with things like this is, I mean, you can impact just a huge group of coaches and players, probably even more doing what you're doing now. Yeah, and one thing, Matt, that I really enjoyed, and I think this is something you and I have in common for sure. You know, as coaches, sometimes you and I have been able to, like, throw caution to the wind doing things that might not be, you know, socially acceptable, so to speak, with coaches, like things that might be a little more risky or yeah. not accepted. And so it's been really awesome to go into different practices and just be able to watch on the sideline and just have this this mindset of, well, have you tried this before? You know, yeah. I think a lot of times as coaches, we get stuck in either the way that we were coached or the way that we think we're supposed to coach versus getting creative. Um, and I think that's one of my favorite pieces of coaching is that creative piece um, and helping yeah. other coaches unlock the creativity they actually have inside. And I just want to clarify that when you say that you and I are a little bit more risky and what we do, style of play is what he's talking about style there. Of play. Yes, Not play. anything strange or weird with uh, how we coach. <laughs> and yeah. no, no, no week, no, you know, no weekly trips to Vegas or anything no, they, like that. Nothing like no, Bobby no. Knight or Rick Majerus, you know, no. you know, at, on the court, but no, you're right on the money. And and I would imagine kind of knowing what, you know, getting to go to practice. Cause it's so easy for us as coaches, like you said, to be stuck in, this is how I, we've always done things or, and it's maybe, oh, man, I was talking with a Dallas Jesuit coach, uh, Chris Hill, and he he had a great comment about every year you have to start new. So whatever happened well or worked well last year, you have to kind of set that aside. Maybe you take a few things with it, but every team, every group that you have is brand new and you got to treat it that way or else you'll start to just try to copy, copy, copy. Mm -hmm. But what if you have a completely different group of players that have different needs and so probably on your side of it, getting to go to practices. Yeah, that's a huge help for, for a coach to be able to hear that advice from someone like you. Yeah, no, I would do that. That's exactly what happened to me as a coach. My first three years um, was super successful. And of course, you know, 25 to 28, we all think, oh, it's me. Like, I know I'm just, I'm such a coach. I've broken the code. I've cracked it. Yeah, exactly. And then in year four, I took over a new program and began to coach the exact same way and to do the exact same things to play offense and defense. I'm um, actually an assistant coach. We didn't know each other before that year, but he was an older guy. You know, I was in my mid twenties and he was um, in his sixties. And during like the second or third practice, <laughs> I'll never forget, Rusty pulled me aside. He's like, Matt, you're the head coach, but are you sure this group can do that? <laughs> um, and knowing everything, right? At 20, yeah. whatever I was, 26, 27, I was like, rest, Rusty, I got this, dude, I got this. Um, and then I'll never forget, halfway through the second quarter of our first game of the year, we were down like 32 to zero. <laughs> and I turned to Rusty and said, you might be right. Maybe there's a different way to do it with this group. And so, yeah, just yeah. being able, I love what that Dallas Jesuit coach said was like, hey, enjoy your success. You know, I like guess coaches and our players, we should enjoy our success 
Um, but don't think what got us there will keep us there. And Man. just still finding new ways to innovate and figure out what fits our players versus trying to force and force and force players to fit just one thing that we think we do well. That's a great point. I think one of the worst things that happened to me here at Faith was I inherited a really talented team. And and mm -hmm. so the style of play that I was using at McKinney with Wes Watson was this pressing, running, and gunning style. These guys, athletically and skill-wise, were able to adopt it, and they took it to another level. So it's, it is one of the greatest memories I have here. But because of how well they did it, you nailed it. I started to think, it's the system. It's the way that we're playing. It has nothing to do. I could take any group of players and do this and replicate it. So a losing season and no playoffs the next year, and then another hard season after. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to learn that lesson. And then over the years, try to adapt. And, and there's a question I like to ask coaches is, is it style or is it, or is it system or is it players? You know, or do you try to, fit the system to the types of players you have. And I think what you and I have just quickly discussed is you have to look at the players that you have and what will enable them to have the most success. I love it. Yeah. On that, on that question specifically, my favorite answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> it's style and it's players. Um, I think, yeah. you know, a lot of times as coaches, we try so hard to fit players into the system. Like, you know, I've been talking about, and maybe back when, I mean, you and I are basically the same age. And maybe as we were growing up in the early to mid-90s, a lot of time was spent outside. A lot of time was spent at the playground, playing, learning, experimenting. And so with our coaches, you know, maybe they could force us to play a certain style because of all our experience and, and different things. And, I mean, you know as well as I do, there's so much that goes on the life of a student athlete right now. Like, yeah. I don't care if you're in middle school, high school, or college. Like, there's so much more that pulls at us and tugs at us. Um, and all these different things that have gravity. And so I think a lot of times now we as coaches just assume our players are getting better on their own. And we just assume no matter what we do, they can do it. And so, but I think it's a, it's a mix, right? I've seen you do that so well. It's something I try to replicate different schools I've coached at, but I know I have a system and a style that I love to play, right? There's one way that's so much more enjoyable to me. I think I'm just better coaching it than I am any other system. Like, you know, if you called me up and said, hey, come help me put in one three one defense, I'd be like, sorry, dude, like not me. Like that's not what you want me to teach. That's not what you want to help get your players better at. Um, but then are we doing the things in season and out of season to help our players develop those skills? And even if it is working on their own, are we giving them the blooped? Um, that's one thing I've loved being able to coach at like a K through 12 school is now I can get into the third grade, into the fifth yeah. grade, into, you know, indoctrinate them, so to speak, in the way that we do it. Um, but even with some good friends that, that I have coached public school, hey, great, go into the middle schools, connect with those coaches. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both. And I, I know you've done such a great job of that faith. But yeah, we have a system that we like. But if we want to run that system, we have to create the players um, and not just, you know, cross our fingers or yell and scream or threaten um, to get them to play a certain way because that's not going to be su successful either. I think a mind shift that might be helpful too is to think less about a system uh, or a, a style of play, but more of concepts that you like mm -hmm. to teach. Uh, I had a uh, coach, Tommy Brackle. He's at North Crowley high school has been yeah. just, he's just one of the, probably the, the best coaches in Dallas, Fort Worth or in Texas and tons of success. But he was one of the few first guys that kind of turned me on to dribble drive motion. Mm -hmm. Golly, probably 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And, and I asked him when I was talking with him, are you still heavy into dribble drive? And he said, you know, dribble drive, is the offense behind our offense. 
Yeah. And I, I kind of pressed on him a little bit more. He's like, well, it's the, we don't run four out one in dribble drive as, as it, the, in its pure form, but the concepts, the ideas behind how we attack, why we attack, when we attack, where we're attacking, that's dribble drive. But now it just looks a little bit different. So I think that's a, a, a mind shift is what style do I love? I love running and gunning and I love pressure. Okay. Well, based on my players, how can I take those concepts, but maybe put it in a scheme that will allow them to be the fastest that they can be, the right. most dynamic, and give them the most success? Yeah, I love that. So good. What's one quality uh, you see in great leaders? You know, Matt's a really good question. And I appreciate giving me a little heads up on that question. Maybe it gave me some time to think about it. Um, but I would say for me, there's so many traits that we can steal from great leaders. Uh, but I know for me, one that I have, like, I just hold on to almost white knuckle style is adaptability. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that great leaders, you know, we go with a game plan. We go in with what we think is going to work best and we you know, commit to it. We prepare. We, we've all those different things. Uh, but when we actually start the game or when we start whatever we're leading people through, um, we have to adapt to the actual situations. Um, I think for us as basketball coaches, as we're leading, right? Like I, I read a quote from Roy Williams one time. He said, if you're still running your game plan six minutes into the game, you're probably doing something wrong. Wow. And that really <laughs> stuck out to me as a coach um, that, that, yes, we have our game plan, but what is actually happening in real time? And I, I think that's something for me that has helped me level up my leadership is being able to be adaptable. You know, what's going on right now? How can we adjust? I mean, we could go coach after coach at the college and pro level, how they've changed their styles over the years, how, um, you know, they've just done things a little bit differently. Uh, you mentioned earlier, right? The difference between coaching, if you coach for 20 years, are you coaching 20 different seasons or one season 20 times? Wow. And so I think one thing that great leaders do and that we should all steal and borrow from is the ability to be adaptable with what's going on in our environment around us. It's hard to hear. I, I completely agree. Here, when I ask that question or when I, and I hear answers, I think naturally I enjoy listening to an answer that I already am in line with and I yeah. don't struggle with. When I hear an answer like that, what do a quality you see in great leaders, you say adaptability and you give all these great reasons or, or ways of showing that it just highlights to me that's an area of weakness that I have. Even take it down to the one situation of in-game changes. I think people would not use that term with me. They would think he's going to start this way and he's going to forge ahead no matter what. So how in games, I mean, how do you create more or have the ability to, to adapt more in games? It's a really good question. And, you know, I think we're, we're definitely all different as coaches. Uh, and then we have to try to, you know, adjust, like I said. But one thing that served me really well is listening to my players. And now if we're going to backtrack, you know, early in the season, preseason, um, years of building a program, right, you build those relationships over time. So I'm not just saying, coaches, like the day one, all 12 players on your team have equal say or you should listen to, you know, everything and try everything. Um, but over time, as I've built relationships with my players, especially ones who care about the game at such a deep level, that the losses hurt them so much, um, passionate about it, is being able to listen to their ideas. Like, I'll actually, I'll never forget, it was about two or three years ago when I was at Cassidy High School in Oklahoma City. And one of our players, named Jackson, um, he's playing Division Three basketball at Kenyon right now. And during the middle of practice one day during a break, he came over to me, he's like, coach, 
Like, I got to tell you, like our defensive coverage um, in this specific defense, it doesn't make sense to me. And I was like, and he, again, very smart. Kenyon's one of the top 20 liberal schools in the country. Like Jackson was a thinker. And I said, okay, Jackson, we'll explain it. Makes sense to me. hundred percent makes right. sense to me. That's why we're doing it. Uh, how does it not make sense to you? And he said, well, coach, I think if we, and then he just explained two simple adjustments, two simple adjustments. So if we did that with our personnel, with our style, um, I think we'd be a little more successful. And I was like, all right, well, hey, let's try it out. Why not? You know, let's, let's, let's throw it out there. Let's see what happens. And I think sometimes as coaches, like when we were players, we remember seeing the game differently than our coaches saw it yeah. from a different angle, different perspective. But then when we like sit in the seat on the end of the bench, we forget about that. And so like that completely changed our defensive coverage. Like it was something that was simpler for the players to understand. Um, they were definitely bought in because their team had come up with it. Um, but just in that moment, man, it changed our defense and we were, we were so much more efficient. So I think that's part of being adaptable as coaches, like listening to our assistant coaches, listening to the players in our team. Like it's one thing for us to, to go to great coaching clinics and hear successful coaches and talk about it and the things they do. And we want to steal and borrow those things. Yeah. But my question is always the filter I try to use, will this work with my group of guys or my group of girls? Because it's different. Um, you know, college coaches, they can recruit to a certain system. They can have a certain type of player they want. At the high school level, we have who we have. And so we have to kind of figure it out as we go. But I think it's one piece of being adaptable is just listening to our players, especially, like I said, those leaders on a team that care so much. And when they have an idea, hey, let's listen to it. Let's try it out. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? A bad possession or two? Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but I've had a couple bad possessions as a coach where I've called the wrong thing or right. we've looked pretty silly. So, uh, yeah, just being adaptable and, and maybe taking uh, taking what a player has to say every once in a while, that's been super beneficial for me. I think that's such a cool way to to allow players to gain ownership, even more ownership mm -hmm. in the process and in, in, in the program uh, and, and probably a sign of a really healthy culture is when they, one, feel like they can approach you with something and aren't immediately going to be shot down. Like, hey, mm -hmm. quiet, you're a player, I'm the coach. Do you see the difference? Like, <laughs> you know, like if, if they know that they can come to you and, and that they'll actually be heard. And then the fact that you would put it into play and experiment, because you're right. I think uh, one when, so if, if we want to try to be more adaptable as a coach, I think one thing that has to lead to that is security in yourself, like actually being mm -hmm. secure in the fact that you don't know everything, but you are in control of the direction, but bringing more people to align with you and to get be involved with you in the process is ultimately going to lead to more success. I think as a younger coach, I probably wasn't secure enough to mm -hmm. allow players or even assistant coaches at times to give me feedback that might've actually helped us on the floor. That's really good. I think it's almost like a teeter-totter piece because I know for me personally, about a handful of years ago, it was one of my toughest seasons as a coach. And I was completely, going into the season and most season, I was completely confident who I was, my ability, the way I saw the game, thought the game. And I actually let too many voices in. And it became to the point where no one knew who to listen to. We were yeah. a newer staff together. And so there were a lot of different ideas in the room and I was trying to validate those ideas, but almost too much validation at times. And not that there were bad ideas, but um, it kind of became the question was, who do I listen to? 
I listen to my teammate, I listen to the assistant coach, I listen to Coach McLeod, like, where does it all fit in? And so that was where, yeah, by the end of that season, man, talking about reaps, I'd love to go about, about halfway through that season and hit the reset button um, because we got too out of control with the number of voices that we had in the locker room on the court. So, yeah, I think that's that's the whole art and the science, right, of coaching. That's right. The art is figuring out when to listen, when to validate, and when to say, hey, okay, love it, so many ideas. I'm the head coach. Here's our decision, win or lose, this is what we're going with right now. Um, so that's a great point you brought up. The same way that we want to outline how we warm up, like we take mm -hmm. up, I mean, I'm assuming, right? We take a part of a practice and say, listen, guys, this is how we sit on the bench. You know, this is how we sub in. This is how we uh, warm up. This is how we come during timeouts and how we stand. The same way that you set up those procedures is the same. I think a, a, another conversation is, all right, when you see something as a player, this is how I'd like for you to come. I want you to come talk to me, but this is how I'd like for you to do it. it in the middle of a timeout, when I'm giving you things that, and where's 10 seconds left, not a good time to bring something yeah. up in front of the group. If you disagree with something that, that I'm saying or that I'm doing, or you have a question one-on-one -on -one with me, you know, at, at a practice in a moment where you can tell that, I, that I'm free. And, and same things with coaches too. Give them your assistant coaches, give them a framework or a plan of attack when they do see something so that you're not in a timeout and everybody's bringing a piece of advice in and nothing happens because of it. Right. Yeah. Actually through that season, and you must be true. I know as a coach and as a dad, as a husband, like when things go wrong at times, that's when we figure out, okay, how would I, how would I do it differently the next time? I think it's mm -hmm. part of being adaptable coach for us as a program. When we discovered the three-step process of communication of right time, right place and right attitude, it was an absolute game changer for us. And just like you said, we had to define each of those areas. Like what is the right <laughs> middle of a timeout, 30 seconds to go, we're down two, not the right time, right place, depending on what's going on. If it's playing time, I um, mean, as a player, you want to talk about playing time. Well, in front of the rest of the team, when you're questioning why someone else is playing over you, it's not the right time, uh, or I'm sorry, the right place. And then the right attitude. You know, I, I think for any player, they should have the right to bring up concerns to their coaches and to talk about things. And if, if their coaches handle it well, that's, you know, it's on us as coaches, but players, you have to have the right attitude. Same thing goes for us as coaches. We're talking to our assistants. We're talking to administration, parents in our program, players in our program. Do we have the right attitude in that conversation? Because even if we're right, I still think we can be wrong at times if yeah. we miss out on that attitude. You see, and we define those three things. Oh man, that next year, it was like, let's go. Like we were rolling, kind of found our niche. Uh, with right time, right place, right attitude. It worked really well for us. That nugget right there, those three things, because I think as coaches, we're searching for clarity and, and mm -hmm. a way to, and that's what PGC does such a great job of, is, is teaching the game in a way that is sticky, that you'll remember, and it's clear. And I don't know if I've had a good way of, when I, I, when I tell players exactly how I want them to talk to me, I don't have a process like that. So if if the rest of this talk you don't say any, no, it'll be it'll be good. But those three th those three things right there, I think were really impactful for sure. It actually came out of my marriage. My wife and I were having a conversation of I didn't always bring up things the right way when I was frustrated, and through that discussion, um, we identified those three things with us in our relationship uh, with our kids and how they approached us. And I was like, you know what? 
this is working pretty well at home. Maybe I should uh, take it over the gym and see how it works as well. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I have any area of life, right time, right place, right attitude. The Jamoti podcast is powered by Sideline Interactive. Sideline Interactive is the leading manufacturer for high quality, innovative scoring tables and LED video display boards that help coaches and schools bring more excitement to fans, create huge fundraising opportunities and make their jobs easier. Visit sidelineinteractive.com to check out their amazing products. I can't wait to ask this question because one, I feel like I already know a little bit of the direction you might go. And kind of like you said before, it's always fun to hear all different types of coaches teach their style of play or and learn new things. But it is fun when you already feel or know like you're aligned in a certain way. I, and I've, and I've heard you teach at clinics before the way that you think about offense and basketball. So what's your favorite style to play or and, and teach? Yeah, such a good question. You know, I love playing fast. And I used that used to be my standard answer. Like how how fast can we play while still being under control in game situations? And then uh, a mentor of mine really challenged me one day. He said, Matt, well, why do you love playing fast so much? And I had to think about it like, what is, is it like, I just like to see bigger numbers on the scoreboard. Mm. Um, is it just, I get bored because of my, you know, ADH kind of <laughs> brand that we all have from time to time as coaches. Like, what is it? And I like actually rewound to when I was a player and realized like when I would just shoot the ball and let it fly. And it felt so good coming off my fingers, watching it go in when I would drive to the rim, draw contact, finish, go to the free throw line. Like those are the moments where I was so confident as a player. And really, like, just again, growing up as a, as a product of the 90s, it was very slow. Like, we were in the flex offense. Mm -hmm. If the post player didn't touch the ball in position, we were coming out of the game like that. And great. Like, there's so many different ways to play basketball. And that way is not wrong. Um, I just found for me as a player, like, the more often I could feel confident, the more confident I'd be throughout that game, throughout that season, throughout my career. And so going back to, like, style of plays, like, I want my players to feel that as often as is just to feel you know that perfect moment the ball just comes off your fingertips and you're already smiling because you know it's just a bucket when it's confidence on the defensive end because they've contested a shot forced a missed like whatever it is and so the more often we can do that in games uh the more successful i felt like we we're going to be just so when things do go wrong it don't, it's not this thing that happens all the time um i know it's just as human beings right matt like when we fail when we make mistakes we tend to sit in it uh, referencing PGC basketball, like Dick DeVille called it the droop, right? You make a mistake, energy goes down, we droop, we're frustrated, we're upset. And so just finding a way where my players had to get through that quicker and where I coach had to get through that quicker. Like if I'm still upset and frustrated and yelling and screaming about a turnover, but we're already playing at the other end, I have to shift my focus really quick. So I think that's why I enjoy that style of play so much is because you you just you forget the frustrations very quickly. You have to forget and get past the mistakes. And man, what a great life lesson for all of us. When we drop the ball, when we have a turnover, when our morning doesn't go very well, like how quick we're in, uh, lifting pressure on the defense to make decisions quickly and uncomfortably. Um, and I just, I love that style of play. It makes me so excited. Because um, I also think, I mean, my favorite thing to do during games is to watch. Like, let's work super hard in practice. Uh, let's level up the team in practice. And then the game, let's go enjoy ourselves. And I think yeah. the style of play is conducive to that as well. Uh, before I, yeah, before you go on, though, uh, because you, you, you said a nugget there that a question that I think every one of us has to ask, which is we have this style of play that we've chosen 
that we feel comfortable with all this, but ask the question, why are you playing that? Why are you choosing that? Because the things that you rattled off, is it about seeing points on the scoreboard? Is it about controlling every, like, you have to be able to answer those things. And I think, like, early on, why do we play fast? We wanted to see a certain amount of threes go up. We wanted to see the scoreboard go up. But mm, why? Like, what's the point? It, it, whatever your style of play is, in anything in life, right? Know your why. So that that question right there is just, that's a huge one for coaches to ask in almost every area and choices that they make. For sure. I think that's so helpful when it comes to defining players' roles. You know, that's, I think that's one of the hardest things we do as coaches is not, I mean, actually it's probably pretty easy for us to define the roles, but to get the buy-in to those yeah. roles we defined. As I've been working with coaches one-on-one the last uh, eight or nine months, I probably get that question more than anything else. Like how do you buy in with these roles? And actually just this morning, I was listening to a podcast that Andrew Bogut was on. And he was talking about when he went from the Milwaukee Bucks and he was shooting 15, 25, a game, 25 times a game as a young NBA player to when he went to the Mark Jackson Warriors uh, early in Steph Curry's career. And the way that Mark Jackson was, hey, if Steph's hot, he's going to shoot. And uh, Andrew Bogut talked about how he had to realize very quickly that every player in the team doesn't have the same role. That if he tried to shoot a lot, like he did in Milwaukee, he was coming off the floor pretty quick. <laughs> um, but if he was setting great screens for Steph, if he was protecting the rim on defense, if he was, you know, diving on the floor with loose balls, he was going to rarely come off the floor. Um, and then he also talked about how, like, players on their team like Harrison Barnes would struggle because for maybe three quarters, you're not up game. And also in the fourth quarter, when Steph's getting double and triple teamed, you're expected to hit down the shot that you haven't touched the ball in 25 minutes mm. and how hard that is. And, and he wasn't. Jackson at all, but he talked about how when Steve Kerr came in and talked about the ball finding energy and the more you touch it, even if you're not shooting it, you're, you're touching it more often, you're getting feel. And I think that goes back to the style that I love to coach. And I, I know you love to coach. Everybody can have a larger role. You know, if we're shooting as a team, we, we typically had a goal every year is a little bit different, but maybe it's to take 33s a game. Well, if we're taking 33s and our opponent's only taking 12, that's 18 more opportunities for players to touch the ball, to shoot the ball, to feel a part of our offense. And so there now, all of a sudden, we can expand roles. Um, yeah. If we're averaging 70 points a game, we need a lot more guys to score than if we're averaging 42 points a game. And so then I think our, our coach asked my time, like, how'd you get buy-in? It's like, well, I watched Matt Salmon coach, and I understood that if you get a lot of guys on the floor game after game, a lot of moments for them, um, a lot of opportunity for them to shoot or to score, like there's going to be more buy-in when you ask them to defend more tonight, when you ask them to protect the rim more tonight than normal. Um, so, yeah, I think that's another great benefit of that style of play is you can expand roles for players on your team that might typically just have a small role. Yeah, two things. I, I like I like the fact – I'll always like hearing that NBA teams and NBA coaches struggle with the same things that we do at the high school yeah. level. So they struggle with role identification and buy-in yeah. just like we do. Like that should just kind of lift, you know, a little bit of pressure off our shoulders that those are millionaires Absolutely. and dudes that are – it's their life and they still struggle. And then uh, I think you're right on the money with – if we're just talking about playing fast and getting – I feel like it's the system – to help your get more buy-in from all of your players 
uh, if if you're if it's a style offensively a style of play where you know only one or two guys are really going to shoot it or are allowed to shoot. Like I've been told, I'm just a screener. Why in the world would I stay after and shoot more? Like I know yep. what I'm going to be doing. If you if you open it up and you have maybe a, a way of thinking that if you are open and you define what that is within your team, if you're open and this is a good shot and you define what that is within your team, for you, you're allowed to shoot it. I just feel like you get a little bit more time in the gym with your players, uh, a little bit more buy-in of uh, when I'm practicing shooting in practice, I know that this is actually a shot I get to shoot in a game. Yeah, it, it becomes a little easier there. Yep. Yep. No, I agree 100%. Like, I, for me, the light bulb went off as a coach when, uh, you know, I've coached guys my whole life as far as in the team setting. And they're no different than me and probably you and your friends growing up. After practice, everyone was trying to dunk, whether we could or not, right? Whether I was still, like, <laughs> that far underneath the rim with my hand, I'm trying to dunk. And um, it just – I don't know if you guys – I think my – end of my first season, maybe my second season as a coach, and one of my assistants pulled me aside and said, Matt – they're all shooting. Like practice was done. They could go home. They could practice their, you know, jelly layups, try to dunk even though they weren't. And we had a gym full of players shooting. And that's when the light bulb went off. Like, oh, they understand when they level up as a player, as a decision maker, they're going to be able to do that more in games. Um, and so, yeah, unlocking that for our, for our players and just seeing that. It wasn't forced. I wasn't telling them to shoot more. Assistant coaches weren't on them to shoot more. Um, when our players do it because they want to, that intrinsic motivation, yeah. um, shoot. I don't care if we we win or lose every game. Like, that's what it's all about. And I, I do think the more intrinsic motivation, the more games will win. But regardless, um, we've taught them a life lesson uh, that so often as high school athletes, we miss out on. I'm going to ask you this question because I don't really know the answer. And I'm trying to think of the other side because not every coach wants to play fast or doesn't think that. Um, and PGC really helped me think about what is truly fast. You know, you're playing fast when the defense is uncomfortable, you know, it, just, just mm -hmm. jogging the ball up the floor, but then that possession taking a long time on that end, isn't playing fast. It's about how long the possessions are offensively are you taking as well? So even though I believe in doing that and I don't see many negatives, I'm going to ask you, what are some of the negatives or drawbacks to playing a fast style of basketball? And that's really, really good. Um, I would say the two that I've run into the most often would be, you know, number one, um, frustration can rise, especially early in the season, um, especially if we're, we're new to this. You know, I forget my first year at Cassidy High School, which is about five years ago, um, I, I had to prepare because I've been through this rebuild a couple of times, putting in a system that's quicker, uncomfortable for a lot of people. I had to tell them, hey, listen, our first three or four weeks of games might be pretty gosh darn ugly, right? Like there's going to be a lot of turnovers. There's going to be a lot of missed shots. There's things you're going to want to yell from the stands. And I get it. I probably want to yell those things from the sidelines well, um, but trusting the process. And so sometimes when you play fast, if you don't see the results right away, um, you tend to give up and go yeah. back to playing slower or playing more methodically um, when in the court. And so I would say that'd be a drawback. Um, I would also argue we have that drawback with other offensive and defensive systems, but that's a big one, right? Like it's not working. They yeah. don't even understand. Uh, like if if Wes Watson from McKinney, they just made a, a deep run and actually just played in the six A UIL championship game. Wow! Uh, and so just an incredible year for him. He is one of the best 
men, best coaches that, that, uh, that I know we were eight and 21, uh, one season at McKinney wanted to do something different, had some smaller guys, but that were skilled. So we started to, we incorporated dribble drive. We wanted to shoot the three more and he really loved, uh, this pressing uh, style of play. So we put those two together and, oh man, it was one of the first games of the year and, and I, I had never played this way as a player. So it was also a little foreign to me as a coach. And, and so we're sitting there and we're pressing and they're breaking it and they're scoring. And I can remember Wes looking down at me and being like, do, do we need to, do we need to get out of this? And, and, I, and I'm not saying it was all me like, no coach, we got to stay. I felt the exact same way, but I felt like in that moment that him and I both needed to at least fake it and show this because we we had never done it before. You know, you and I, nine, 10 years into playing fast, we can clap and cheer through those moments of kind of bad basketball early on because we know what it will turn into mm -hmm. in December, mid-December, you know, but at that time, oh, it just maybe transport back at time of him looking at me, do we need to do something? Do we need to get out of this? And no, coach, just keep going, keep going. <laughs> You got to fake it till you make it, right? I <laughs> just believe in it, see what happens. I love it. What was the uh, one more thing about that too? If you if coaches are looking to make this this change ever, and and Matt's a great guy to talk to about it and get deeper. Tyler Cost, another guy, great guy uh, uh, with savvy basketball to talk to about it and get deeper into it. Um, is in your parent meetings. I would just encourage at the beginning of the year, the last ten years, I've said. Parents, in the first few games, like Coach, like Matt said, first few games or even into early December, yeah. uh, turnovers are going to be high and shooting percentage is going to be really low, but that's okay. And if you hear me clapping and encouraging and telling them that it's great when we're turning the ball over and we're missing shots, it's because they're trying to do exactly what I want them to do. And I know that. Every and it's about I don't know what date, but mid December, that flips to where turnovers are now low and shooting percentages raising. It's getting higher. So I would agree. That's I think it's a good thing to uh, help the parents understanding and 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 why they're seeing what they're seeing. I think that's good to do. Yeah, actually, one thing that I heard Carol say recently that I wish I would have had this to share with parents in the past was he said his coaches too often, and I think this applies to parents, anybody who cares, right? Coaches care about their players. Parents care about the players. We both care. Uh, sometimes we don't see eye to eye, but whatever, that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> but what Pete Carroll said was, as coaches, we want to coach the results and not the process. And so if the ball goes in, it's a good shot. If we turn it over, it's a bad possession, right? But he said, no, no, like, we just might, like, we might see the right decision or know what to do. We're just a half second too slow. Or we just, we don't quite know how to get the ball where we want it. And so that's just like, man, like, just like bomb dropped on me. Like, stop coaching the results and always coach the process, um, right? Because like you said, Matt, we're playing for the end of the year. At the beginning, like, who cares? Lose a couple of games in November and December that maybe you could have won anyway. But like, I'll give other coaches those because I know we're going to win games in February and March that people don't expect us to. Um, and that's yeah. when the season really flips. It's just like the what Christian rapper Trip Lee said, trophies don't go to the ones that have a good beginning. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's the so great, good. the great philosopher, yeah. Trip Lee. I love it. And, uh, I just, but on that note too, how many, how many posters, slogans, quotes do we, do we have or say that we don't follow? If you have yep. a poster in your locker room that says it's about the process, but you're resulting hardcore every day, you know, you just got, you, you'll lose credibility with your players because they're going to walk in the locker room. They're going to see something. They're going to be like, well, that's just the exact opposite. It, we have joy in our locker room, the word joy. And if I am sucking the joy out of everything, every practice, every game, every meeting, then there's going to become a disconnect. And I just think it's a good reminder. That's really good. You know, one thing I had to learn as a coach was sometimes I had too many sayings and posters and motivational things up in the locker room. And it was almost like uh, not only just overwhelming, but like a little overkill, right? Like, yeah. like authenticity is something that's very important to the players that we coach. And so even my last uh, two years as a coach, we had one sign up in the locker room. Now our whiteboard, our motivational thought, our thing might change. I told them day to day, week to week, whenever I need something new. Um, but we had one sign and it was uh, the Urban Meyer thought, you know, living above the line. Because that's something we had struggled with the team. Like we were very, very bipolar um, in, in the way. And, and that's not not trying to belittle anyone who struggles with that. But just we would show up one way one day and then show up another way a different Inconsistent. Day. Inconsistent. Yeah, just completely consistent. So just every time you walk out of the locker room, you saw one sign. And it was black and white, <laughs> no yeah. frills, no anything else. And it says, what do you choose today? And it had a line drawn across it. And so that was like, now, like you said, Matt, now we can all focus in. Me as a coach, the head coach, my assistant coaches, our players, if we have a manager or two, like we all have to choose. And now every decision we make, every reaction, every emotion is funneled through. How are we living today? We're living with a line. And same thing with you guys with joy. Like every decision that I'm making right now, am I choosing joy in this moment? Am I letting joy influence and filter through uh, the words coming out of my mouth, the the language I have, how hard I'm going right now in this drill? Um, so yeah, I love that being able to just like, like go back to that one thing that coaches, players, administrators, parents know is most important for our program. Coaches, the Jamoti podcast is powered by Biology. What's your BSA score? The Biology Skills Assessment is the only verified skills metric endorsed by the NAIA, NJCAA, and a growing number of NCAA coaches to discover and develop the best talent for your team. This four-minute, 40-shot test can be taken free today on the Biology mobile app. Elevate your game. One thing I don't, I don't feel like I'm very good at, and when I was talking with Tyler Costin and he was going into some analytics and some depth and, and, and some coaches do get to, ask, they do ask me about shooting and some things. And a lot of times they'll ask, what's your, what's your team's shooting percentage? And uh, there's a large part of me. I don't care. I don't yeah. care about percentage. Uh, the more you take, the more you make. I'm more of a, a Grinnell coach, Arsenault, Loyola Marymount, West Hetty, and then, than that. But I do believe analytics play a big part in our game today but I'm just not very good at knowing what analytics I should be paying attention to, how to incorporate that and get my teams better. So my question to you is what role do you think analytics play in coaching today? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the larger a role it can play with our teams, um, the more efficient we can be. And I think as coaching, you need to set aside sometimes winning and losing. Because just like John Wooden said, there's games that we're going to play great in and we're going to lose and we need to be okay with that. And there's games we're going to play terrible in, we're going to win, 
And we shouldn't be okay with that. You know, our standard of who we are, how we show up. And so I think that, again, talk about efficiency. You know, how do how do teams win? Well, they're more efficient on offense. Or maybe they're more efficient on defense, however you want to look at two sides of the same coin, sure. right? Um, but for me with analytics, you know, I, I believe that um, as coaches, the more that we can introduce those things to our players, and it, coaching will always be subjective, right? Always. There's going to be a part of it that's always subjective. But we can incorporate some objectivity when we use analytics. Um, one thing that I know you and I do similarly, but probably a little bit different, is how we determine um, who has the freedom to be a, um, you know, different terms. I think most coaches a green light shooter. Green light shooter, right? That's yeah. That's that, hey, even yeah. if you're 0 for 5 from the three-point line, but you catch it, you're open, you're uncontested, like let that sucker fly. Um, yeah. And so for us, that was one way that we used some analytics. Um, we, again, as simple as a Google Sheet or a whiteboard in the gym, where after any one of our our like shooting tests or drills that we would do, we would just track and we would measure. And so then we would begin to set a standard of, hey, you know, I want Matt to shoot in games because he earned it, yeah. not because I like Matt more than I like Joe or than I like Tim or Matt's parents give more money to the booster club than, than Freddie's parents do. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's analytic there, right? Like we're using numbers to make decisions. I think sometimes coaches feel like analytics is like this like overwhelming word or concept. Yeah. No, no. We're just using numbers to inform our decision-making. Um, for any coach that has huddle, right? Like we've learned, um, there's so many free <laughs> analytics within what we pay for huddle. Um, even just making the simple thing. I tell coach all the time, if you're feeling overwhelmed, like, look, one thing you can do to make yourself so much better as a coach, your team so much better, is focus on ESG instead of FG. So instead of the old school field goal percentage, just look at the effective field goal percentage. Um, it's not that hard to calculate. Google it, something will, a little calculator will pop up, but also Huddle does it for us automatically. Yeah. And so then we just begin to train our players when they go to the stat sheet for a game or for the season, look at EFG. Because um, all that does, coaches, if you're unfamiliar, is it just values the three-point shot. If a three goes in, it's valued 1.5 times as much as a two-point shot. Because in the game, that's how much it's worth, 1.5 times as much. And so then it became, our players began to see that, hey, we can be really efficient in many different ways. Um, and so like, I think that thing that is, again, analysts can feel like overwhelming to a lot of coaches who aren't familiar with it or maybe a little more advanced in their career. Um, for me, I'm seven and like an under average athlete. And so the only way I was ever successful in basketball is I had to figure out how to be the most efficient player I could be. And so I think that's one thing that got this fire lit inside of me um, to preach the gospel of analytics, so to speak, to help other coaches see that, hey, we might be able to find a couple ways to be a little more efficient so and eliminate shots um, during a certain game. Um, and just really trying to help use analytics to shoot the best shots more often and to stop shooting the worst shots are to take. If we can do that, we're being successful. I think I think we, we mentioned earlier about role identification and how important that is. I think analytics can play a big role in that as well. Because I say that I'm not good at using analytics and, and maybe the in-game stats or breaking those down. And I don't necessarily, we don't necessarily go through those with our team. This was our EFG. This is how many turnovers. This was our points per possession. I don't necessarily do that. I think it's important as coaches that we do know those numbers and really evaluate because what we think we see may be actually different than what's actually mm -hmm. happening. But then, you know, with shooting, uh, using analytics, it's, it's not just, you know, what huddle does or, or those are based on our stats from games, but 
if you do want to have more shooting in your program, that means you're going to have more guys taking shots in games. But you always, I don't care what style, you want your better players taking majority of the shots most of the time. And shooting games where you are charting, either writing down scores or at least huddling up and out loud saying what scores are uh, across the board, that's role identification. If Mm -hmm. I, in green, yellow, red shooting, am consistently a 32-32, but this guy right next to me is consistently 60 or above, that's role identification. If I'm kind of open, coach is screaming me to one more, well, it's to him. That makes a lot of sense because I know from what I've heard that he's a better shooter and that he can, besides just in-game percentage, because sometimes your best shooters will have a two for 20 night. Does that mean that they shouldn't be shooting anymore? Heck no, because it's not about that night. It's about what they've done over a long period of time. So analytics spread more out and used in practice, not just from what that last game did. Absolutely. I love it. Matt, you made a great point on there um, about just the fact that it might not always be things we talk about with the players. Like one thing that I stumbled onto um, that works well for us as a team, as a program, I actually came up with, um, it was either two or three pages. It was not very long, but it was our, again, at Cassidy High School, the last school I coached at, it was our Cassidy uh, Basketball Dictionary. And so what I did was the 10 or 12, maybe it was 14 stats that I value as a coach that our coaching staff talked behind closed doors. Um, we actually defined those for the players and parents in our program. Mm-hmm. And they all had access to that, that document on Google Drive. And so even if we talk about it every single day, um, they knew what we valued the most. And like I laughed earlier, Matt, when you said people ask about your shooting percentage and you're like, I don't know, the more you take, the more you make. Um, but I know you know as well as I do that the three-point shot on offense, statistically speaking, you're going to get a higher percentage of your offensive rebounds. And yeah. so that's where we even away from tracking total, <laughs> total rebounds to rebound percentages. Yeah. You know, how often are we going, are we getting the offensive board on a missed shot? I mean, we knew from a, a numbers game and tracking over time that if we could get 40% or more of our misses as offensive rebounds, we were going to win more games than we were going to lose, right? Tons of factors play in. I'm not saying that's the only one, but we just knew that. So for a, you know, a, a quote big on our team who might not shoot as much as his teammates, well, there's role identification. Like, dude, your teammates are missing 65% of their threes right now. Like, we're not a great shooting team. We're in that 30 to 35% range yeah. um, early in the season, maybe. Hey, dude, think of the free layups you get. Like, go crash the glass, get an offensive rebound, put it back in. And in fact, like, we would find typically our, you know, again, I don't, the traditional system, our numbering system is different. Our five just meant you need to get down the floor before everybody else. You might be 5'11", you might be 6'4", or whatever. But we found our fives were typically urging a double-double, and it was offensive rebounds and putbacks. Um, and so, hey, man, what a great role identification is that? You might not be the first shooter on possession, but you're going to finish the possession. You're going to end up and, and get it done. And um, actually, I had a question for you as you were talking. Um, you talked about your your. I don't get many questions way. back at oh, me, so Matt. This I got. Is I got not- to know. I got to know. It's been <laughs> since we had this conversation. Um, I totally agree when you said, "Hey, if I'm the 32 guy, coach is yelling one more, you know, and I still want to let it fly, but I'm, I'm hearing one more. The guy who's maybe averaging 60 in our drill. How do you handle? Because this is something I've really, really struggled with. Let's say the third, you're the 60 guy, I'm the 32 guy. But like you said, maybe the 60 guy is two for 11 and our 32 guy is four for five, 
right? So like he's feeling himself in that game. Has a like Jamal Crawford, Austin Rivers <laughs> heating up, irrational confidence. Um, we still want, right? We probably still want that one more, especially contested versus the question how do you handle as a coach right like if i come back over you on the sideline and say coach like i get it he's a better shooter most of the time but like i'm feeling it tonight and he's off yeah how how would you handle that if i have so the great thing i think it's smart that a lot of coaches don't ask me questions when i went during this the podcast process because you you don't have another hour or two to talk, especially about shooting <laughs> somebody asked me a defensive question it'll be pretty quick uh but uh First, if, I think if you're dealing with that, having to answer that question for the first time in that moment, you've already messed mm. up. Yeah. I think those the answer to that question with that player or handling it, the groundwork should have been done months and months ago. Uh, because I actually had a talk with a with a coach yesterday. We want he wanted to talk shooting, and I always start the talk with shot selection. And it's probably not where coaches think it's going to go. The, what drills, what uh, what form, what this or that. No, 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 no. Shot selection. So if my players need to know what is an open shot for them, because that and PGC helped me with that. So you know the exact same scale that I'm talking about. But they need, if you're just talking about, guys, we need to take good shots. If you don't have an established what that is, you have five different human beings thinking differently about what a good shot is, you're going to fail. But let's just pretend that the guy that hits 32 is open in a game and what we would call it a good shot. So it's a wide open shot within his range. But another player it, to the left of him in our spacing, in our scheme is also open, but his shooting percentage or the the, the amount he makes is higher. If, if, he, if, if the 32 guy shoots it, Here's what I'm going to say. Nothing. If he makes it, we're going to hype it up. We're going to celebrate. If he decides not to shoot it and he one mores it, I'm probably going to hype that up and celebrate that even more as if when he shot it and made it himself. If he shoots it and it's a seven, which is a wide open jump shot within his range, and he misses it, because I want to protect his confidence, and because our style of play is we will take the first seven as fast as possible. I'm not going to erode his confidence or get into his thinking, even though there's a possible one more right there. Now, if it's not a seven for him, let's say it's a six, it's a contested jump shot, or he hasn't demonstrated in practice that that's a seven for him. Uh, and he doesn't one more it instead of subbing him out, getting on to him. What I'm going to say is, hey, I want you to shoot that thing with confidence again, but be prepared and see those one mores because a guy next to you, you know, and I'll go through that. There's no emotion involved with it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say, little Timmy, you suck, don't shoot, pass that ball off. But I do think that groundwork has to be done almost. I want the players after they shoot to know, already know what I think about the shot they took. That's Not good. wonder, but already know, you know what? If I look over at Coach Saman right now, he's probably not going to like what I just did. I want them to know that, even though I probably will surprise them with how much, I think, grace and love that you yeah. show. Because if you really want a culture of shooting, then there has to be this freedom that if I'm open 
and we've already defined what that is, I have the freedom to shoot that. But then because they probably know they'll get celebrated even more because we love one more. So we love, I love, you said the ball is energy. Yeah, we, in our flow, we want that ball to be moving and it's going to find the right place. When we make that, I'm going to probably get even more positive attention from yeah. that decision. So that long answer, and which is why people don't probably ask me questions <laughs> back, but love that. I love it. Like it's the foundation, right? Like that, the thing that just, when you said it, like if that's the first time you're having a conversation, you've messed up as a coach. It's not the player's fault. It's our fault because we have not set that foundation, that groundwork. And that was so good. Appreciate sharing that. I think, I think it, it comes down to your skill work too. Like yeah. you have to have things, not just individually they're doing with the ball where they score, but there are times when you're actually working on those actions and the things that, and that's what I, I thought too, when you said like you, you were mentioning offensive rebounding. How many, how many times have I thought or do coaches think that, man, I hope we offensive rebound well tonight. If you're basing your game off of hope, whether you're a player or you're a coach, I think you're in trouble. So yeah, I think we are, we, we will see what we expect. And mm -hmm. if we're expecting them to crash the boards, we'll see that happening if we're not telling them to doing that or, or, or telling them or we're not showing them film where hey guys this is a three from one of our best shooters there's nobody in the paint I mean I love your confidence that you have in him that you just know it's going in but you're not going to get offensive rebounds if you're not crashing and you're not seeing it yeah. I think we have to let them know what we're expecting coaches the Jamoti podcast is powered by shoot 360 the future of basketball has arrived in Dallas-Fort Worth. Shoot360 combines the latest sports technology with the fundamentals of basketball skill development. The result is a one-of-a-kind video game-like basketball program designed to improve your shooting, dribbling, and passing. Visit Shoot360DFW.com to learn more and register for your free one-hour workout evaluation. Shoot360, the future of basketball is here. How do you teach shooting in your program? <laughs> we're gonna laugh uh you already answered that question shot selection <laughs> that's how we teach shooting in our program um you know defining the shots we want most often and on the flip side define the shots we don't want to take we want rarely in games you know i think whether you have a shot clock or not is going to impact shots at different times in the game um or style of play you know, for guys like you and I who like to get more shots up, um, our shot selection might be a little bit different or what we're okay with might be a little bit different than if we're trying to keep the game in the, the mid-40s, maybe low-50s. Um, and so for us, as we teach shooting, I mean, that's the first thing is understanding. Um, look, we want all of you to take as many shots in the game as possible. Like, we really do. Like, if, if we the more threats to score, the more shooters on the floor we can have, like, we're going to yeah. be more successful. wouldn't want that. But then we have to... Um, as you said, lay the groundwork to define what that means. Okay, our green light shooters average this um, in our different drills, the different shooting competitions that we do in practice. And so, you know, the moment you get to this average, let it fly, you know, absolutely let it fly. Um, the question I get probably about most often when I'm talking about shooting is, well, when do you sub a player out for shooting too much? And like, never. I can't think of a time, and maybe once or twice, right? And again, it, this might be a, a younger player on the team. Maybe it's in a blowout situation. We're trying to teach something, but even I'll, I'd rather call a timeout than just sub him out um, to have a conversation if it's that important in real time. But I think coaches, a lot of time, what we think is important in real time is actually not that 
we can let it go. We can come back to it tomorrow in practice. Uh, the only time that we have ever subbed for shooting is when you don't shoot the open shoot. Um, the, one of the best shooters, like probably top three, top four shooters I've ever coached was too unselfish. And actually we called it selfish on the team. Like when you don't shoot an open three, you're it's a actually turnover. selfish. It's yeah, a it's like, like you're not helping our team be successful. That's what selfish is. Yep. Selfish is not shooting too much. It can also be the side. And so we actually that year had made a new rule, had never had it before. But if he turned down to open, uncontested, in-range threes, and his range was behind the volleyball line. Like, I mean, he could shoot from deep. And if he turned down two in a row, he was subbed because that wasn't helping us, helping us be successful. And I, so I think just again, going back to how do we teach shooting? What's our shot selection? What's our standard? And then coaches, do we actually hold the standard ourselves during practice and game? If I'm a coach that says I believe in shooting, but we rarely spend time shooting in practice, <laughs> there's a disconnect for our players. Good luck. Um, and yeah. yeah, like in the same thing in games. Um, if we preach shooting, 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 we know even, well, you know, Steph Curry's having a down year where he's shooting like 35% on threes. When he misses a three, no one's thinking, take out they're thinking he's going to hit the next four is probably what they're thinking and so i think we have to be a little more man you stole my word a little more merciful right a little more gracious as a coach when it comes to those pieces of hey you missed one but i still believe in you when you're open next time let it fly i think just thinking and listen to you talk like i think you can take almost every coach and know exactly what their culture of their program is based on how they approach shooting. Mm, that's good. Because if if you pull a kid out who is shooting the shots that you've designated and are on your team that this is what we want, but he misses multiple shots in a row and he's subbed out because of that, that means you're resulting. You're mm -hmm. not process-based at that point. Or it means you haven't discussed what shot selection is and it's not defined clearly with your team because so there's coaches that, that I don't really want to play fast or I don't want to increase my speed or let more freedom. I'm really worried about bad shots. I think you would probably agree if we shoot 80 shots in a game, which 70 to 80 is really what we want. We want that many attempts. I can only think to three or four in a game that are what I would consider fives or sixes, mm -hmm. contested jump shots or 50-50 shots that are just, you're, you're hoping at that point. But you think about that percentage, that's not bad at all. That means only three or four times in a game am I saying, hey, Johnny, come here, rate that shot. What do you think? It was a six. Yeah, I agree, it was a six. You know what? When you get a six, peek instead, look for one more. And if that's not there, attack the world, get to the paint. That, that's how quickly that conversation could go. And I don't yeah. strip strip away his confidence. I don't embarrass him in front of his girlfriend and his parents and his friends. And, and, I, and, and also playing time isn't, isn't dictated by that. But again, I go back to everything that you've kind of said in this whole talk comes full circle when you're talking about probably the most important statistic of the game is, is shooting. Yeah. No, and I think – I can always tell those seasons when it's clicking when we're teaching shooting is when a player, like one of our, our better shooters, is called a green light shooter, will miss two or three in a row. And whether it's the next free throw opportunity, whether it's end of quarter, time out, 
as he's coming over to the to the huddle and maybe you know head down a little bit because he just knows those are shots he should make and he's he's fighting that internal self-talk battle when it's a teammate especially one who does not play very much right maybe the guy who sits behind one of our mentions when they jump up hey hey those are all sevens keep shooting sevens like we need you to shoot those shots like the moment that happens, that's when I'm just like, all right, guys, you don't need me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> just go play. That's a good What culture. do you want to do the timeout? What do you want to run? Because when we care about each other at that level, um, I think we've coaches, we've done our job. Yeah. And now it's on the players to let them go have the freedom to go play. Yeah. I just always want to push back when I hear the, I'm just, I don't like bad shots. Or now there is a point where, depending on how fast you want to get, like how crazy you kind of said at the very beginning, extreme or how, how, uh, running running to extremes are the these books i have back here you know that i will never open again or read again about grinnell and things like that because it is this other level other other way of thinking but i do think th the more that you teach shot preparation getting their feet down delivering strikes jay wolf the founder of star shooter the shooting strap had yeah. one of the coolest ways of teaching how to shoot game speed and he said, Matt, when a guy catches the ball, he has to say out loud, game speed, but as fast as he can. So when you will you do that for me? Say game speed as fast as you can. Game speed. Faster. Game speed. Yeah. You hear the guh, a little bit of the M, and then and then the D at the like, yeah. Game speed. That's how fast it should take for you, or how long it should take for you to get the ball out of your hands. He said, try it. So I went to the gym the next day and I caught the ball and I said, Get me. I mean, it made me shoot quicker. It, it made me very uncomfortable because most of us don't shoot as fast as we're capable of. Yep. And if you start to train that way. So all of that to say, when you are have shooters that are trained in shooting at that speed, sixes, a contested jump shot, they start to look different. Yep. For it truly to be a six, that means that, when that ball is moving up into through your shot progression, the hand is already there. If you're moving up through your shot progression and it's out of your hands and then the hand comes, that to an untrained eye will look like they're shooting hard contested shots. No, 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 no. Once it's out of your hand, I don't care what you do to me. You could come punch me in the stomach. Yeah. It's not contested at that point. It's right. already gone. And so I look at our shot selection as, it may look like we're shooting fast, forced, contested threes, but not to us. I think it, it'll change the way that you really start to look at to where you can shoot 45 to 50 threes in a game and only really want to take back one or two of them. Yeah, I love that. You know, that's that's something that, that flipped for me the way I taught shooting and even like echoing what you just said about what a contested shot is. One time I heard Steph Curry interviewed and they asked him, how do you like, like basically, how do you know when to shoot it and when not to? He said, if I can see the rim when I release it, it's always a great shot. Yeah. And I think that like vision, like it's not where the hands, it's not depth of closeout, how close or far away. It's what's our vision. And if we can teach our players to shoot when they have vision versus depth versus anything else. And you already went back to it. It's the shot preparation, right? That's why, like I grew up in North Carolina, huge Duke fan. So I'm hoping Coach K can end in a, in a championship level. It would um, be cool. But it's also why I want them to play Villanova in the national championship game. Villanova on the men's division one side has better shot preparation yep. than any other team that I've seen this season. 
And just like, if you're ready to shoot, you can actually shoot versus catching it and then getting ready to shoot. So I just, I didn't want to let that point miss that you mentioned, like that's so important shooting. It's just teaching preparation. Yeah, that's so <laughs> um, good. The more time I have to get it off, the more often it's going to go in. You and I being both PGC guys and they, it's PGC transformed, not me, just me as a player, but me as a coach as well later on. And they're not a, uh, they're not a sponsor of, of this podcast. So so I don't want you to think that I'm we're shoving them down. Yeah, we are. We're, but coaches, like if you want to transform your ideas of shooting, training shooters, uh, and, and having a culture of shooting, go to a PGC shooting college. Cause to me, uh, if you come to one of our skill practices, which in season, if it's not 50% of your practice time working on shooting, I don't think it's enough. And uh, it's uh, it, it would look just like a, a PGC shooting college. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's so good. You know, actually, you know, Matt, uh, going back to your little game speed uh, example <laughs> you used, I got to tell you, so now we're on record. Everyone knows um, I have stolen that from you. You told me that one time, like, I don't know, is that a coach, the TABC coaches clinic, like yep. 10 years ago. And that stuck with me so much, right? Like you talk about sticky language earlier, just such a great example of now, every time my players catch the ball um, or in college athletes I have when I'm directing, <laughs> like they have yeah. that thought. Um, and I do give you credit for the record. Just so you know, I tell them, so for my great friend, Matt Saman, but um, like, do from you- From Jay Wolf. <laughs> I couldn't remember who you stole it from, so yeah. I just gave you the credit. Um, but that's so true. Like we get frustrated as coaches that they're shooting contested shots, that jump shots are getting tipped or blocked. Really, we failed them as their coach because we haven't taught them how to shoot quick enough. Um, for a long time as a coach, when a player would miss short, you'd hear me just like so many other coaches, more legs, more legs. Man. But now I'm actually faster hands, faster yeah. hands. Like so often power generation, I'm getting on a tangent, but power generation is about your hand speed. Um, can you move your hands quicker? Like you talked about through your shooting progression, um, that's going to make a shooter is just speeding up their hands. It's not your legs. Your feet are super important. Yeah. Having your feet down, whether it's at an angle, whether it's 10 toes. I'm a 10 toes guy. So I don't like when people try to shove down, you should be turned on your, like, I was a darn, I, I was an okay shooter. And, it, but I was a 10 you toes guy. Than okay shoot, but, <laughs> but it's, you know, that's anatomy. My shoulders, I was comfortable. I could square up like that. Uh, Gannon Baker is a 10 toes guy, you know, like, but then the, the feet, all that, your feet need to be set and you need to know what type of foot preparation that you like. It's not hop, over, step, not one or the other. It's both. And it's what you like in that time. But I think, uh, defenses are too good at every level. There are some man-to-man -man defensive coaches in DFW that are phenomenal. So if we go into a game against them saying, guys, listen, only open shots. Okay, good luck with that. Because there's no action in the world that is going to create open shots every possession. And so, well, guys, listen, don't shoot any contested. You're going to shoot 10 shots a game. And you're probably going to lose 30 to 28. You know, like you have to be willing to shoot shots that appear contested. But if you train that way, basically, like, isn't that what we want as coaches? To set our players up for success in games, for situations where they're going to be in. And they're going to be in times where 
guys running at me, but you know what? I do this every day and it's easy. I love it. That's it's so, so true. Um, always hunting for the perfect shot. I actually, one year, I early experiment with read and react, which is a great offense for a lot of coaches. Uh, I, I have stolen things from it over time, but our first, I'll never forget our first game of the year, the year before we had averaged over 70 points a game. And so like you and I both know to average over 70, like you can't take a lot of time on your offensive possessions most often. Yep. And we won the opening tip. We go down. We've only put in layer one so far. And after two minutes of passing cut with no shots, I call timeout. <laughs> two minutes into our first game of the season, like, guys, like I understand, but I had to go through the same thing. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for good. And we're looking like, what can we do now to set defense for later in the game? Yeah. Um, we need more possession, we need more pieces. And even I think the same thing's true for style of shooting. Um, I was a, I was not a Matt Saman level shooter, but I was an okay shooter in high school and I was 10 toes. And the reason I was 10 toes, because that's the way we were always taught. Um, and that's the way that I got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of reps in. Personally, I do like a little bit of an offset footprint now for myself as I've experimented. And what I tell players and coaches all the time is, again, there's no absolutes in basketball, except you have to score more points if you want to win the game. That is the only absolute. There are great ten-toe shooters. There are great um, offset footprint. And so it's got to be expectation. And I think going back to what we were talking about earlier with great leaders and their adaptability, like am I as a coach allowing my players to experiment during practices as we're going through the lab with our players? Like let them experiment ten-toes. Like KD, like He's like 90 degrees to the side, right? When he shoots a lot, like he turns sideways and Clay Thompson is 10 toes and they're both great shooters in their own right. And so our players have to figure out what works for me. Like what, how does my body best move? And then get, like you said, foul reps. I I tell coach all the time, I prefer reps over technique. I will take the athlete that has a wrong technique or a quote broken technique. If they're going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of reps in, over the person who must be perfect, and then they don't shoot very often. Um, Sean Marion, right? Great example. No middle coach would ever shoot the matrix to shoot the way he shot in the NBA. But he was a 40%, give or take, three-point shooter over his career. And, I mean, he'd be a $20 million a year right now on 3D level. Um, and it wasn't perfect, but he was just so good and got so many reps. I, I think that's what comes down to we, as we teach shooting. There's got to be reps. In practice, reps out of practice, uh, reps of experimentation. And then once you figure it out, just hammer it home um, until it just becomes that what we all call muscle memory. And you don't think anymore, you just do. Coach, I've, I've known you for, like we said ten, earlier, 10 years. But after the speed round, I'm really going to know you. Okay? And, okay. and coaches, are we're really going to get to know Matt McLeod today. So first question, favorite ice cream flavor? Cookies and cream. For high school, shot clock or no shot clock? Yes, all levels, top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, Texting or talking? Depends who the relationship is with, if I'm being honest. That's the Um, good, that's the best answer. It is. But just don't expect a response (laughs) quickly from me. It doesn't matter which one it is. I'm terrible (laughs) responding. So we can all learn that about me right now. At least you know yourself. You know, you know yourself. Favorite holiday? Hmm. You know, I enjoyed Christmas this year more than ever before because I spent more time with my kids. And it's not a bad thing, right? Where we as coaches are, are so full. Um, but where we had like two and a half weeks, my wife uh, runs a school. So she had the whole holiday break off. Like, I really, really enjoyed Christmas. I would say before that, 
Um, probably 4th of July. Um, yeah. Our family, that was just a, a big day of celebration. And so I've always loved the 4th of July. Nice. Invisibility or super strength? Hmm. I like to be sneaky. So I'm going to have to go invisibility without thinking through that one too much. <laughs> uh, uh, if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Hmm. Man, that's a phenomenal question because there's so many potential answers. Um, I think for me, any period of time, we're probably going, you know, turn of the century, 1800 to 1900s. A lot of great inventions are happening. Um, I think that's because I'm a technology guy. Like uh, as cool as it would be to like run with King, uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Yeah. I would struggle living on the land. <laughs> Got to be honest. I'm not the guy. I'm not Bear Giles that can like live off yeah. rubs and things. I'm, I need a little bit of technology, a little interaction. But maybe, you know, turn the Maybe I'll go hang out with James Naismith. We invent basketball. That'd be a lot of fun too. Yeah, I think I need to have a distinction in that question of you can, you can go to it, but you don't actually have to like be in it. Because oh, okay. Scott Drew, I asked that question and he said, uh, he, he's he's big history guy. Yeah. Like, he's like, I love to go kind of like see a war, a battle. Mm. He's like, and then he paused. He's like, but I, I don't want to fight in it because I don't think yeah. I could do that. <laughs> I was like, that's a good idea. Like, he, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to go see, you know, the three years of Jesus ministry. Yeah. But do I necessarily want to, you know, be like in all those, I don't know. Um I'm going to ask you this one. I've never asked this before, but because we're such good friends, I know that you're not going to refuse. Say good day, mate, in an Australian accent. Oh, I'm excited about this one. I, I just listened to Andrew Bogut this morning. I should like just know how he was speaking, right? Um, good day, mate. That how was, was good. that? That was, that was good. good. Oh, I like it. Yeah, two more. Uh, and it's not really a question. It's more of a demand. So I don't know if I can use that one. Uh, how many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Down to two, max two, sometimes only one. So yeah, really, that's a stretch for me. It used to be six or seven, um, but now we're one every morning for sure. Maybe lunchtime, hopefully not. I, I just want to encourage you because I, I was I was thinking about that the other day because how much caffeine is is bad for you is damaging, and, and you know obviously there's some health things like if somebody has some heart issues or thyroid mm -hmm. I, I I'm I'm not saying any of that's like uh, looking past any of that but the amount of caffeine that you and I have to take in for it to be really bad is so high like right. incredibly high like. I, the odds of us, like we would have to work really hard to get there. And so just to, I don't want you to feel bad because I'm trying to make myself not feel bad. <laughs> I the love fact it. that I'm like six or seven with maybe an energy drink, which no sugar, of course, but energy drink in there. So anyway, uh, last well, that's me. See, so yeah, if we're going to, if we're going to like preference a little more, <laughs> I'm always the one to, I, I can't do black coffee. I've tried. Mm. I've gone, you know, my, my brother told me three weeks, just do it. You'll love it. If I have to, right? Yeah. So for me, it wasn't as much the caffeine as the cream and the sugar. That I was yeah, you're, now that'll get you. So yeah, like that got me. You. That's when I ballooned up to my biggest. <laughs> so um, yeah, and I, you know, as we get a little older in age, like yeah, found out I had my heart beats kind of fast sometimes, and so I've had to limit my evening coffee so I can actually like go to sleep at night with a lot of anxiety or, yeah. or heart, you know, type of deal. And so, yeah, agreed. It's not about the cups of coffee, but I am down to one or two, which for Matt McLeod is probably what's best. 
Yeah, that's smart. Last one, probably the most important, uh, Godfather or Star Wars. Is neither an option? Yes, Can I it go is. Yes, yes, it is. I, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, which really hurts my dad's heart every time. Yeah, you um, and I and, used to be friends. We used yeah, to be we, friends. I'm sorry. I, I appreciate it. Um, I just don't choose to watch it. And, uh, you know. What kind, of, thinking, what kind of movie genre do you go to? That's a great question. You know, I'm either like into the like great cinematography at one point in my life. I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. And so, you know, detailed scenes and storytelling and all that. Um, but really, like, give me Wa Mark Wahlberg, uh, give me Fast and the Furious. Like, it's an it's an entertainment piece for me now. Like, those are those are my my uh, my dirty little nice. secret of movies. Uh, nice. I will watch Mark Wahlberg in anything. Uh, give me a little Vin Diesel, a little maybe The Rock action, but entertainment. That's what I use movies for now. Hey man, we just flew through about an hour and a half's worth of stuff, and it felt like nothing. And I I knew and that's what it would be like to talk hoops with you again. Yeah, tell tell us really quick, uh, Matt McLeod basketball, CoachMcLeod.com. What are some things you're offering? What are some ways that coaches can connect with you? Yeah, I mean, you know, Matt, as you and I were talking about early on, even really before we started recording, it, my desire is to serve coaches and find ways to help them level up their teams, level up who they are. And so my website is one way I try to do that. Um, all the content on there is free. There's not a promotion for a subscription service. But if you just go to uh, Coach McLeod, and it's uh, M-C-L-E-O-D, like the Highlander, the old movie, uh, CoachMcLeod.com, um, lots of film breakdowns on there, uh, blog posts, just sharing my thoughts, my ideas of the game. And I also have a newsletter I send out every week, Deep Three. Um, that goes out to coaches, players, and parents. And then um, a second email called the Coach's Corner, which goes just to coaches. And that's just a, a challenge really for all of us. Um, sometimes it's like 200 words. Sometimes when I get really passionate, it's like 2,000 words. So, you know, <laughs> open, if you open, scroll, if you scroll. Um, but those are the ways that you're trying to find ways to be able to help coaches and players, like I said, level up who they are. That's kind of been my thing. I want to be able to journey with coaches and players and help them become the person they know they can become. Um, you know, other stuff on there. I do some one-on-one -on -one coaching. I, I do some skills training and things, but but really my desire is just to serve. So uh, coaches would love for you to catch, check out CoachMcLeod.com. Um, also on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at underscore Matt McLeod, M-A-T-T-M-C-L-E-O-D. And we just love feedback. You know, Matt, you and I have texted for back and forth. I said, hey man, read this article. Just give me your thoughts. Um, hey, what video breakdown? I just started a YouTube channel, just kind of uh, tiptoeing out into that new arena. Yeah. Um, coaches would love feedback would love to hear uh what's serving you well or, or other ways that i could serve you through the game of basketball i just want to just say thank you i appreciate just how authentic you are like you what you see is what you get and even if i wasn't a fast basketball fan and i didn't feel like we aligned uh on, on on anything with basketball i would still love getting to listen and learn from somebody like you and and just appreciate your friendship too man over the years yeah Absolutely, man. Love you so much. Thank you for, for having me on. You know, actually, people ask me all the time, like, how like how fast do you like to play? And this is like, this is my example 100% of the time. I said, if Grinnell and the system is 100% crazy, I've got a really good friend, Matt Samen in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I would call Matt like 92, 93% crazy. And like I'm like that. that 85, 86% crazy. Like, I'm one step down from Matt. Like, my best years, I hit that Matt Samen level, but I'm, I'm a little... A little turn down from that so that's that's my scale of how fast i play is grinnell 
Matt Stamen, and then I kind of come in right below that. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate I love the 92% because you're right. I'm not 100% crazy, but 92%. But, man, hey, Absolutely. thank you so much for your time, and uh, this is going to be great for coaches. And thanks for having me on so much. Thank you for checking out today's episode. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your fellow coaches, and find us on social media for what's coming up next on the Jamoti Podcast. It's just a matter of doing it.